Well, saints, if you would open your Bibles to the New Testament book of Revelation chapter 20. So we're going to be here um, in this book just for a couple more weeks, and then we're going to move to Hosea. But as we find ourselves here in chapter 20, on Wednesday we covered the entirety of this portion. But I want to focus on just one aspect of it here this morning. In verse 3, it declares this, And he, that is simply an angel, cast him, that would be that dragon, that serpent of the old who is devil and Satan, he cast him into the bottomless pit, and he shut him up, set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till a thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. It's interesting that through all the wiles of the enemy, everything that he's capable of doing, the thing that the Lord prevents him from doing here in verse 3 is that he should deceive the nations no more. And I think, just make no mistake, there are a lot of things the enemy does, but underlying over all of it is a deception. And if you want to know what a deception is, think of it this way. It's a form of gray. It's something that isn't pure. In other words, you can take a truth, but then inside that truth, you stuff a lie. So it looks like the truth. It sounds like the truth, but it's not really the truth. And if you buy into these areas of deception, what the enemy does is this. He just takes that same and he stuffs a little bit more lie in it. And then he stuffs a little bit more lie in it. And so we begin to see here that the enemy, what he's going to be prevented from doing is deceiving. People will not be deceived. In other words, there's going to be black and there's going to be white. There's going to be truth and there's going to be light. There's going to be, you know, sin and there's going to be righteousness. There is going to be this mixture. This isn't going to be this gray area. There's not going to be this, this fence in which we can straddle. And I think so often with us that we buy into those lies. Why? Because our hearts wants to believe those lies. And keep in mind that it's not only the enemy that deceives us. And as we'll see here um, this morning through this message, that there's going to be others that deceive us. False prophets want to deceive us. There's going to be our own hearts, our own dreams want to deceive us. Deceptions come from all areas, not simply the enemy himself. But the enemy is here bound for a thousand years that he should deceive the nations no more. Now, in verse 8, it declares that Satan is going to be released from his prison and he will go out to deceive the nations. Understand, the first thing that he does when he gets he deceives. He is a deceiver. Now, two things to note about the enemy is, of course, in John 10, 10, he calls him the thief, where he says the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's who this thief is. And although the thief has come to kill, to steal, kill, and destroy, Jesus come that we might have life and that we may have it more abundantly. That's the enemy. Now, if you want a greater clarification of who this enemy is, in John 8, 44, he makes this statement, Jesus speaking, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. In other words, 
steal, kill, destroy. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. But when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Satan is a deceiver. That's who he is. And as we understand him as a deceiver, keep in mind that what happens is this. As we, through the Holy Spirit, begin to take on those characteristics of Christ, and as disciples of Christ, we want to be like him, so the disciples of Satan what take on his characteristics as well. There's a passage in Matthew chapter 24, two verses I want to read to you, just simply jot them down. In chapter 24, verse 11, we see here that um, as Jesus is speaking, he says, then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Also in Matthew 24, verse 24, it says, for false Christs, and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the very elect. So make no mistake that even we as Christians, we who have the light of the word, we who have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, we too can be deceived. And the enemy wants to deceive us. He uses his minions, the, the false prophets he uses those who are false christs that they will come in and it's all meant to deceive now there's a passion uh, a portion of scripture in jeremiah i want to read it to you jeremiah 29 i'm going to be reading from verse 7 and verse 8 because i want you to see a little bit of clarity of what here the lord is talking about these deceptions he says in verse 7 as he talks to the children of Israel who are in exile, he makes this statement, and seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away. And I want to pause there for just a second, because so often what the enemy wants to do in a deception is this, fight against the man, fight against what's going on. And here the Lord just simply says, wow, seek the peace of the city. Seek the peace of the city. Don't be those that try to create an uproar, try to bring peace to the city. And I'll tell you what, in our cities right now, there's chaos going on. There are still people who are protesting on one side and people who are beating up the protesters that are on the one side. And, and there's just this chaos and these you know dictates and rules and regulations that are coming down. And we want to fight against them, but God very clearly says, Seek the peace of the city where I've caused you to be carried away captive, and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. And I think what happens is this, when I've done everything I can to bring peace, God, you pour your spirit, you touch, you do what I, you can do, then let me be that instrument of peace as well. And so often we find ourselves as instruments as what? Well, we are just sparks to tinder. Not, not simply, what can I do to put out this fire? What can I do to bring peace? But we are those sparks. And he says this in verse 8 of Jeremiah 29. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you nor listen to your dreams, 
which you caused to be dreamed. There's two things that deceive here. One are prophets and design, the diviners. In other words, those who say what you want to hear. And to be honest with you, there's a lot of people who just simply say, I, I'm going to keep asking and asking and asking until finally somebody tells me what I want to hear. There have been times where someone has come and they've asked, you know, Terry and say, Terry, what do you think I should do in this situation? And Terry will open the word of God and he'll share a passage. And then they'll find another brother. What do you think that I should do? And they'll open the word of God and they'll, they'll declare a passage. And then they'll ask me, what do you think I should do? And I'll open the word of God. And then they'll keep asking people until they say, oh, I think you should do this. Oh, good, because that's what I want to do anyways. They'll reject the word, reject the light, and they keep moving on and moving on until what? Until someone tells them what they want to hear. Versus, would you please open up the word of God and, and explain to me in context what the heart of God is? Not necessarily what I should be doing, but what is the heart of God? Because once I realize the heart of God, guess what? That gives me a direction to walk. So often we think, well, you got to achieve, you got to achieve. It's not always achieving. We know that in this body, in this flesh, we do the things that we don't want to do. We're not doing the things that we want to do. But if we realize what's the heart of God and what does his word declare? What is purity? What is light? What is the furthest thing to say, God, your righteousness that you declare in your word? And then let that be the thing that you walk towards. Not try to satisfy, not, not try to justify, not try to compromise. And yet we're willing to do what? We're willing to just do a little bit, but not go all the way. As long as I'm going a little bit in the right direction, I'm comfortable in myself. But realizing this is really where his heart is, and I'm so far from that, but yet we're deceiving ourselves, thinking I'm okay because I'm inching towards it. Sometimes God just simply says, forsake those things, forsake those thoughts, forsake them things, come all the way to where I am. But here he warns us that there are you know, false prophets and diviners, people who will tell you what you want to hear, and then this, nor listen to your dreams which you cause to be dreamed. There are so many times that we ourselves ponder and think, this has to be a truth. Why? Because I feel it. God has to be okay with me not listening to his word and compromising that word because of my situation. And so often we think that our situation entitles us to compromise. Our situation entitles us to not fully go after what God and his word declares. And yet we realize that this is a deception. People who tell us what we want to hear. <coughs> and then our own dreams our own thoughts, which we cause to think, to make sure that, okay, I think God will allow me to slide on this one. There's a passage in 2 Corinthians. I want to read it to you, found in chapter 12. And the 2 Corinthians chapter, um, chapter 12 I want to start reading the, the, the right thing to do. There are going to be the differences we look to this between the feeders and the fleecers. 
There are those who feed the flock and those who fleece the flock. There are those who want to build you up and have you follow Christ. And there's those who want to have you follow them. And there are these kinds of teachers out there. There are these kinds of people out there. And one of the dangers is, is this. When I talk to young couples in premarital counseling, one of the things that I warn them of is, listen, if this person wants you to say, oh, look at me, look at me, look at me, how great I am, how wonderful I am, how marvelous I am, versus look at Christ. Now understand, when you look at Christ, you're going to realize that they're going to see you as far less. But this is what, this is what we should be doing to those that we say, my ministry to you is to lead you to Christ. And so I warn them, be careful of people who want you to just look to them, look to them, and not look to Christ. You, you want to look to those people who say, just, just go to Christ. I want to draw you to Christ. I want to draw you to his word. Those are the people that you want to involve yourself with. But Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14, makes this statement now for the third time, I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I do not seek yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay it for their parents, but their parents for the children. Paul says, I want to come, and my desire is not for you to bless me. My desire is not for you to minister to me. My desire is how can I bless you? How can I minister to you? He says, the children don't lay up for the parents. The parents lay up for the children. And I love the heart because this is where Paul says, I want you, not yours. And what the false prophets do is this. There are, as a work, when you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he talks about these people who are, are just trying to fleece the flock, and he makes this statement, and, and so you can read through the context of chapter 11 yourself, but I want to start in verse 13 through 15, because he makes this statement, for such are false prophets, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ, and no wonder for Satan himself transforms himself into the angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. There are a lot of ministers, a lot of um, ministries, and what they do is this. Their heart isn't really to seek yours, to seek you, to say, my whole goal here is how can I cause you to grow in Christ? How can I cause you to grow in his word? Where you're not looking to me, who's the flawed speaker, but you're looking to what? The one who is unflawed, who I'm speaking about. And I think this is the key. You're just pointing them to Christ, pointing them to Christ, and you seek them. But a lot of the ministries don't seek them. They seek what is theirs. In other words, your stuff. How can I profit from you? How can I gain from you? How can you minister to me? Versus the other way around. And keep in mind, there's a lot of people and they will transform themselves 
into ministers of light or ministers of righteousness, that they will do all these things, but their heart themselves is to benefit themselves. And I think it's important to realize that this is how deception works. The deception is this, is the goal is is to grow the congregation and to build up and to feed the flock. Or is the goal to, what can I do to gain from the flock? And so there's this big difference between the feeding and the fleecing. If you've seen my Bible or you understand there's a saying in Calvary, it says, feed my sheep. This is one of those sayings that Jesus gave to Peter. And on my Bible, right there on the front cover, it simply says, feed my sheep. Big bold letters. I had it etched into the leather. Feed my sheep. And this is a command. This is a command. Feed them, feed them, feed them. It doesn't say fleece my sheep. Don't don't shave them all the time to see what you can get. Feed them, grow them, mature them. But there are those who they will deceive. They'll they'll look like here these false apostles, deceitful workers transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Look at my life. Look at my life. Help benefit me. And no wonder Satan himself, that deceiver, transforms himself into an angel of light. So how do you know the difference between the feeders and the fleecers? Well, that answer comes back in that portion of 2 Corinthians 12, 14, where Paul says, listen, I do not seek yours, but you. And I think it's important to say, am I just loved? Am I fed? Am I blessed? Am I, are they not looking for anything from me? It's interesting that there are a lot of churches that when people will come here for the first time, they'll be looking, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? And they're surprised by our answer. And the answer is just this. Sit down, relax, and let God bless you. And do nothing to earn that blessing. Do nothing to deserve the blessing. Don't say, well, I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this for the church. Now I deserve to be fed. No, just realize God loves you enough. Even if you do nothing, And sometimes the mature Christian has a hard time sitting back and just receiving the blessings of God. Like, but I've done nothing to deserve it. Right? We've never done anything to deserve it. Even if you think you've done something, you've done nothing to deserve the great blessings of God. He loves you that much. And it's a very difficult thing for mature Christians just to sit back and say, come into a body and just be blessed. Come into a body and just let God pour into you for a change versus you doing and doing and doing. Now, keep in mind, there are balances. There are usually twice a year that we try to say, hey, come on out. We're going to call it Church Stewardship Day. And we've told you what it is. It's a day that we're going to get work out of you. It's a day that you're going to come and you're going to serve and we're going to do a real deep cleaning within the church. We're going to do a deep cleaning outside the church. We're going to be good stewards of what God has given to us. And there are times that we will do that. I think it's it's okay, but we don't demand everyone to be here. We say if God's put it upon your heart, but we do want to be good stewards. So we call it church stewardship day. But in reality, it's it's we want to, honestly, there's a lot of tasks 
that we're saving up for those times that Tim and I and, and the, the, the crew, we don't have a time to get to it all, but on that day, it's like this is where we're going to have a lot of people. We'll get a lot of things done. And we'll wait for those days to say, we're going to have bodies. We can do it here. We can get a better job done. And so we look forward to those days. But even in those moments, it's not where this constant, constant, constant. So I want to, you know, just be open and honest with you. There are a couple times a year that we do ask, come and help and, and bless and serve the body so that when people walk in, they go, wow, this is really a beautiful place. That, that, that here they take care of what God has provided. And those are the things that we want to do. So be careful because there is a difference between feeders and fleecers. And that's where Paul says, he says, I do not seek yours, I seek you. My heart is to see you and have you grow. Now, the basis for most of Satan's deception, most of his wiles come through um, really trying to create into us what is known as this heart of unbelief. If you're familiar with that passage in uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, there's this real warning that comes. He says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. There's this warning of, be careful, there's this heart of unbelief, a heart of unbelief, and be careful how that comes. And normally what happens is this. When Satan deceives... And if you want a, a note here, I think this is important that you could actually call this one of the bullet points to the message that when Satan deceives, deception is a slow process. Let me say that again. Deception is a slow process. Why do I say that? Um, the, Satan moves slowly. He doesn't have to go fast. What happens is this, that when your life has a little gray area, what Satan does is this. He makes it just a little bit more gray, just a little larger area. It's just you don't even perceive it growing. You don't even perceive it, it going. So if you have this, this, this blot on your life that's gray, and you've allowed this area in your life, and it's, it's there. You know it. Other people know. But what Satan does, he makes it just a little bit larger, just imperceptibly, and then he makes it just a little bit larger. Because if you allow a, great a gray blotch, he can make it a little larger, and it'll let you repent of it, and then it's gone. Then it's purity. Or if you have more than one blotch, he, he uses this blotch, makes this a little bigger, and then this one a little bigger, and this, and eventually becomes gray. And when you have a gray life, what he does is this. He makes it grayer. All of a sudden, it's just a little bit, just, just slightly grayer than what it was and then slightly grayer than what it was. And, and then you, you don't realize because it's so imperceptible, but that's what Satan does. He does these things in increments. And if you can already compromise in one little thing, and all of a sudden, then you can compromise in a little bit more. And then you compromise in a little bit more. And then you compromise in a little bit more. And that's what Satan does. And he just goes, just increments. And then eventually we wonder, how in the world did I get here? Now keep in mind that David did not begin by thinking, oh, let me kill the children of Israel. 
Let me kill them through deception. But eventually that's what wound up happening. You know that passage. You know the event where it was the season where kings went out to war and David was at home. But it was a season where kings should have been at war. Did David repent? No, he allowed that gray area. And then while he was there, while he was there not battling, then what Satan now brings this woman Bathsheba bathing at her on her rooftop. And David now, he on his balcony, sees her and is curious, who is this woman? And someone said, oh, oh, she is Bathsheba, the wife of one of your mighty men, Uriah the Hittite. And so he said, well, call her, bring her. What are you doing, David? Why are you? She's the wife of one of your men. But yet it was what? Just another increment. And as he took her, as he lay with her, and now she found herself with child, and like, well, how do I cover this up? Well, let's bring Uriah back. And he brings Uriah back, and for three nights, he doesn't go into his wife. And they, what do I do now? So he puts a letter in Uriah's own hand, has Uriah deliver it to Joab, and says, hey, Get Uriah to the front where he'll die. And so Joab brings Uriah with a bunch of other children of Israel to the, to the front of the gates where the archers would shoot down. And then he writes David a letter through a messenger and says, oh, we, we kind of lost some men. We were there, we approached the wall and, and the archers shot and they, they killed the men. And, and, and Joab told the messenger, he said, now David gets upset, let him know, oh, Uriah was among those men that died. And so the, the messenger came and said, oh, we lost some good men, David. They, they were, you know, Joab told him, go up to the gate and go up to the wall. And the archer shot down and they killed them. And oh, and Uriah was, was there among them. And they said, oh, things happen like that in war. But David never went to entitled to think about that initially. That was just something that happened, what? The first compromise, what? Not going to battle. And the second one, rather than repenting and going to battle, nothing else would have happened. Then it was what? Now I'm going to look at a woman. I'm going to lust after her. And rather than repenting of that lust and then going back to war, he does what? He doesn't do that. He now inquires of her, finds out she's the wife of Uriah. Rather than repenting, Father, forgive me for lusting after a wife of another man. When I have all these wives and concubines, what does he do? He brings her in. Do you understand step by step by step? Till eventually he kills Uriah and other children of Israel to cover up his sin. But it all becomes what? Increments. Little tiny increments. Deception is a slow process. And as we see here, there's, there's one way that deception will not become that process. And I want to read to you from Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. And this is how you stop those blotches from growing and the gray areas from getting darker. It says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report. If there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. What does that mean? Walk in the purest purity that you can. That's all it means. It means that you focus on what is the, 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 the closest that I can do to get to God's heart. What is the purest that I can think? What is the purest that I can talk? What is the purest that I can look to? And what are the things that are most loving? Always the things that are what? Most like God. 
In other words, that old question, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And if I can walk or at least go in that direction to what is the purest and what is the most noble, what is the most just, what is the most lovely, what is the most praiseworthy, then I'm going to be aware of what? What is not the most. And that's how you overcome the enemy when you see a blotch in my life. That isn't praiseworthy. That isn't noble. That isn't lovely. Repent of it. Get rid of it and say, I'm going to pursue you. Because if you allow that and you say, well, that isn't very noble, that isn't very praiseworthy, that isn't very lovely, that isn't true, it isn't just, but you allow that, what does the enemy do? He allows it to get a little larger, incrementally. And then he allows it to get a little larger. And if you compromise that, a little bit larger. And if you're fully compromised, he makes it darker and darker till eventually you're walking in things and doing things you would have never thought you would be doing. And this is how the enemy does it. He does it slowly. He does it in increments. You guys are aware of that passage in Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus, after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he then goes into the wilderness. And while he's there fasting, he's now hungry. And interesting, what happens is this. The enemy comes to him and he says, if you are the son of God, or the better translation, I think, is since you are the son of God, knowing who he is, command these stones to become bread. The very first thing that he does, he tries to cause a doubt in the heart of Jesus Christ to doubt God's provision, to doubt God's care, to doubt God's love. And isn't that interesting? He says, oh, you know what? You're, you're hungry. And apparently God hasn't brought in any food to you. So take it upon yourself. You are God. And as you are God, just command these stones to become bread. Just minister to yourself because apparently God isn't going to do it. And he didn't quote that scripture from Second Opinions chapter 2. God helps those that help themselves. And it's so important to realize that he says... You need to do this on your own. And I love Jesus' response. Man shall not live by bread alone. Like he told his disciples in John 10, for I have food to eat of that you don't even know yet. And here he realizes that he's living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's his sustenance. That's his life. And so, but that's the enemy. The enemy will come in and will cause, want us to, you know, just to doubt God's word, to doubt his promises. And it's interesting that that's what the enemy does. Initially, he just, he wants to cause doubt initially and then to deny, but it's always in increments. Now, now keep, if you're here in Matthew 4, keep it here, but jot down these two verses. Jot down Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 and Genesis chapter 3, verse 4. And in this, I just want to read you these two passages because this is that subtlety of Satan. He begins in verse 1, Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast which was in the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said that you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? Now the very first thing that he does is he causes doubt, but he always takes it in the negative. Do you ever notice how God's word is always in the positive? What God said to Adam is this, Adam, here you are in the garden. You can eat everything. Everything here in the garden is for you. 
And he says, however, there is one exception, the tree that is there in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and fruit and evil, knowledge of, of good and evil, you cannot eat because the day that you eat of it, you're going to die. You're going to be separated from me because you're, you're going to choose your own will over my will. But it's interesting that here God spoke in the positive. You can eat everything. And what does the enemy do? He speaks God's word in the negative. Notice what he says. Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree? See how the enemy subtly begins to doubt God's goodness and God's, you know, his, his promises and his provision? He takes what God said in the positive, reverses it to the negative, and it begins to cause a doubt on God's word. Has God indeed said? And then eventually when she says, oh yeah, you know, we can't eat of this one, we're going to die. Notice what he says in there in verse 4. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. From doubting God's word to denying God's word. Do you see how the increments go? And if you can begin to listen to the enemy as he begins to say, listen, where God has you, what he's doing in your life is not good. You, you, you're making better choices than the word of God is made in your life. And you're thinking, oh, yes, I am. Yes, until what? Until one day, all the fruit of what you're doing comes to pass, and then you reap what you sow. And as you do that, then you realize, oh, my goodness, I've sowed to the whirlwind. I didn't sow those things that were pure and true and right and lovely, that I, I was compromised. And Satan allowed those compromises to get to be larger compromises and larger compromises, and then the gray areas to become deeper grays. But we see here that that's what the enemy does. He says, you're hungry. Command these stones to be bread. Well, that didn't work all that well as he wanted him to basically doubt his provision and he wanted him to doubt, you know, where, where God was. And then eventually he does this. The enemy takes up the sun, verse 5 of Matthew 4. He took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the city, and he said to him, if you are the son of God, or since you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in your hands they will bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. He quotes scripture. Now you would think the enemy, if he's quoting scripture, it has to be true, right? No, because scripture out of context is what? It's a lie. Scripture out of context is a lie. We talked about it on a Wednesday a little bit more in depth, but what happens is this, that the lies can't harm you. Because when it's a lie, you realize what? It's a lie. I know it's a lie. I don't want to do it. I'm, I, I realize it's, it's not good for me. I realize that it's wrong. I, a lie is a lie, and the lie you see for what it is, and you walk away from it. But what happens is this, when the lie is wrapped in the truth, and all of a sudden it's like, well... There might be a little lie in it, but it's mostly true. Now, if you can bite into that sandwich, guess what happens? Then all of a sudden, now you are opened up to what? Even greater deceptions and greater deceptions. So we begin to see here that first he says, okay, you're, you're doubting God's provision. Make the stones bread. He says, no, God is enough. And then he says, all right, I understand God's enough, but I want you to see this. 
why don't you go and throw yourself down? Because here, God is going to protect you, isn't he? You can do whatever you want to do, and God is a God of love, so God is going to cover all of your foolish choices. No, he's not. So Jesus brings it back to clarity. He says, I can't choose foolish choices and expect the grace of God to come. What's interesting is this. Many Christians look to the grace of God to say, the grace of God is here to cover the choices that I'm choosing to do, even though I know they're wrong. Now, what happens is this. They choose the word grace and say, I'm under grace. I'm under grace. I'm under grace, which is the devil's way of saying that you can sin and don't worry, the blood of Jesus covers it. But that's not grace. That's called licentiousness. That's saying that you have a license to sin and grace doesn't give you a license to sin. What grace does is this. Grace says that no matter how far you've sinned, that you can turn around and Jesus will be there. It doesn't mean that you continue to sin. That's abusing the grace of God. That's manipulating the grace of God. That's not grace. That's license. That's sinning. But God does say, here's my grace, that no matter if you're here today, as far getting darker and darker in your life, God says that if you repent and you come back to Philippians 4.8, that whatever things are pure and lovely and true and noble and just, if you come back to those things, if you repent, you turn, and Jesus is going to be right there saying, here I am, and my blood has covered. Let's walk to God. That's the heart, but the enemy says what? Let's just test God. Let's just test him and believe that no matter what I do in my foolish decisions, that it's covered. No, what grace in the blood of Christ covers is this. It covers unintentional sin. And then when you realize it, what do you do? Well, then the Bible is clear. Then you repent of it, you turn from it, you walk to God. But grace doesn't just say, well, go ahead and sin and sin a little bit more and sin a little bit more and don't worry about it because grace is covering it. That's an error to what the scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that when you become aware of that sin, you do what? You turn, you repent, you confess, and then you walk to God. And yet here the enemy says, test him. And I love what Jesus said. It's written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Don't, don't try to manipulate God. Don't try to allow grace to say, oh, I'm under grace, I'm under grace, I'm under grace. You know what people who say I'm under grace is doing? They're allowing themselves to be deceived. And if you're saying here's the gray area and God's okay with it, understand God loves you, but he hates sin. We, we learned how he hated sin in the last couple of chapters. What did he do? He wiped out Babylon, the religious system. He wiped out Babylon, the political and you know the, the, the social system. He wiped out sin. And he took those that were coming against him and he, with the sword of his mouth, wiped them out. God hates sin. Don't think he's okay with those areas and the grace is covering. God says, I'm not okay with those areas. I love you, but repent of it. Don't compromise your life. And so get rid of those things, repent of those things, and come into the light. But this is what the enemy does. He causes us to doubt. He causes us to doubt God's love. And then he causes us to say, well, no, I believe in God's love, but I believe his love enables me and covers me. <laughs> no, no. 
His, his love doesn't enable you. His love gives you the provision to turn and to realize that he's there. That's grace. And so the third thing that the enemy does is this. Now that he's been told twice and he used the word of God to say, oh, this God will allow this. Look at verse 8 of Matthew 4. Again, he took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He said, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. I want you to see that here, what Satan is trying to do to Jesus is this, take a shortcut. You don't have to go through the path of suffering you don't have to go through the path that God has chosen for you. There's a shortcut you can take. You can get everything that God's promised you. You just do a different path than God wants you to walk. Satan says, you can have all the kingdoms. I know that's what you're going to get when you die on the cross, but you don't have to die on the cross. You don't have to be forsaken by God. I'll give you all these kingdoms. I'll give you the people. They'll all be yours. You can have them. And he's trying to say, obey, get to where God wants you to be, but take your own route. And I'll tell you what, how good do those shortcuts look? Oh my goodness, I could just avoid all that trial. I could avoid all that suffering. I could avoid all that pain. And I could just get it all? How wise is Satan to say, I can still get this, but avoid the path? In other words, that God's path is wrong? That God's path isn't the right path? Keep in mind that not only does he want to get us there, but he needs to do a work in us to prepare us. Remember what God did with the promised land? He told the children of Israel, this land is yours, and I prepared it for you. But as he's bringing them to the promised land, what does he do? He takes a three-day route and turns it into 40 years of journey. Why? Because he's preparing them for the land. And he prepares both. He says, here's, here's where I want you to be. But the whole reason I'm having you go on this path is to prepare you for this blessing. But I have to prepare you that when I prepare you, that you're humble. And, and, and rather than circumventing God's plan, we have this tendency of thinking, I can do what God wants me to do in a better, more efficient way. But what does that do? You're like, oh, man, did I have that one worked out. It allows me to be very prideful in my decisions, and I didn't have to go through any of that. Look at how wise I am. Look at how good I've chosen God's going to put me right next to Jesus Christ. It's going to be him, Jesus on his right hand, either me on his left or me on the right of Christ. I know that decision was amazing. And we're all puffed up. And he says, listen, I've chosen this to keep you humble, to keep you obedient, and to keep you trusting in me. Because all of these things I'm going to go and, and I'm going to watch over you and I am going to protect you. And so we realize here that there is a path that God wants for us, and Satan does want us to circumvent those paths. But what is that? That's a deception. That's a lie. 
Remember what Jesus said to the disciples on the road to Emmaus? He says, you know, ought not the Christ to have suffered to have entered into his glory? There's a path to glory that God has chosen, and many times that path leads through suffering. But that suffering path is, is, is good. That suffering path is of God. He's the one who chooses it. He's the one who works it. There's that passage you know it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 7. And I want to read down to verse 10, where here Paul had seen what he understands to be heaven. And, and as he sees him, he says, there was a one who was caught up to paradise and he with heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. And he goes in verse 7 and says, But lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me lest I be exalted above measure. Here, this messenger of Satan, this demonic entity, was allowed to do what to Paul? To buffet him again and again and again. And verses saying, well, I can circumvent this. I can go another route. Why is God allowing this? God is wrong to allow this. He said, concerning this thing, verse 8, I pleaded with the Lord three times and it might depart from me. And yet the Lord he says this in verse 9, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says, Therefore I most gladly, I will rather boast in my affirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasures in affirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distress for in Christ for Christ's sakes for when I am weak then I am strong the weaker I am the more powerful God is and and I want you to understand that God here allows times where where he wants to take us through a path that he's going to show us things but he, through those things he wants to keep us humble but one of the greatest lies of the enemy is this. The same way that he was tripped up by what? Pride. I will exalt myself. I will exalt myself above God, above his throne, above the heights of the heavens. They will all worship me as God. And of course, God allowed that there in Revelation. He says, all right, they'll worship you. And the people are like, I'm not going to worship you. It, it sounded good initially, but man, you are a horrible God. And they all walked away. They wanted to kill him. And so we see here that that although the enemy wants that worship, God says, listen, I've got a path for you, but don't deceive yourselves in thinking that Satan can give you a better path or you can choose a better path for yourself. There are times when God chooses something for our lives and it's not working out the way that we thought. I thought it would be like this and I thought it would be like that and it's not working the way I think. Well, then let me just change this path because I can do that, but what does God do? He says, this is the path that I've chosen for you. This is a path because through this path, you don't realize what I'm going to do in you and how strong you're going to be in me and how you're going to realize that no matter what these outward circumstances will be, Christ in me, the hope of glory will give me strength. And what I'm going to do is this, is every time those outward situations come, I'm tapping in on the inward strength. I'm tapping in on the inward promises. I'm tapping into life 
and, the, and what God has for me. Unless I be exalted by thinking, I know a better path than God, I'll stay humble by realizing, okay, I don't like this path that you've chosen. I don't like this path that's going on, but I trust this path. Why? Because I trust you. I trust your judgments. I trust who you have. And so this is the key to when the enemy wants to manipulate all those things and, and realize that one of the things that he'll do is say, the path is all wrong. The path, and God says, no, the path is right. Don't, don't change the path because you think you know a better path. Don't say, no, I, I, I know this is what, what God had for me. This is what he promised, but I think I know a better route. I can, I can get this and I can get this. I can get all these other things while going through this path. You don't know what God needs you to have. You don't know the path and why he has you on it. But if you trust him and you say, I'm not going to doubt your provision and doubt your plan and doubt your power, but I'm going to trust you through this path, God is going to bless you beyond measure. Maybe not necessarily here on the earth as you go through these things like Paul, but he realized what this, the blessings that I have is these spiritual revelations of Christ in me, the hope of glory, Christ in me, this power. So he says, literally, I take pleasures in affirmities. I take pleasures in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distress for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, I'm strong. And the enemy says, oh, no, when you're strong, you're strong. <laughs> Isn't that a lie? Isn't that deceptive? But what he does is this. He opposes God's word. Did God really say that you need to be weak? Did God really say that you should be in distress? Did God really say, you know, here that, that you should be in reproaches and needs? Yeah, he really did. But we have a better plan. We have a better route. We have a better thing. So Satan, deception is a slow process. Increments, increments, increments. And next, if you're looking for bullet points, is this that Satan will often disguise his activities so that we blame others. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but what happens is this. So often it's the, the, the plan of Satan that when something happens, we look to a person. Say, oh, it's, it's your fault. It's your fault. It's your fault. It's you. It's you. It's you. It's always you. What happens is this. He causes us to look now at the faults of other people. Because you did this, you caused me pain. This is your problem. You're the blame. You're the blame. You're the blame. You're always blaming someone for what's going on on the inside. And keep in mind that what happens is this, is Satan wants you to look at all of these, and we'll call them for the sake of argument, symptoms and not the cause. See, the symptoms is you were angry, you were bitter, you said this, you did this, all these things were negative, you looked at me the wrong way, you didn't look at me when I was talking to you, all these are things that you do wrong and you do wrong and you do wrong. The problem isn't the symptoms, the problem is the cause, and the cause is what? Sin. Sin has come into this world, and then we, we look to the symptoms rather than what? Blaming the cause. The cause is what? Satan, you brought sin into the garden. That's the cause. That's who we blame. Nothing more, nothing less. That's the deal. And what happens is this, is we see this. Satan has us moving from the cause issue to the symptom issue. 
and pointing out its people, it's the people, it's the people, it's the person, it's the person, versus it's, it's not the people. It is truly, truly the cause. You guys know this passage. I just want to read it to you and just have it quoted, but jot it down if you're unfamiliar with its, its location. But in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, what Paul writes to the church of Ephesus is this, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. It's not about blaming the people. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. What do you war against? principalities, powers. And we understand that the what? The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Oh, but they are mighty in God for the tearing down of strongholds. The enemy is going to build up a stronghold. But, but what do we do in prayer? Well, what did the children of Israel do when they walked around Jericho? Silent, walk around, celebrate God and watch the walls fall down. That's all you have to do. Watch God do the work. See, so often we see the situation, how can, I, how can I fix this? How can I break down these walls? How can I tear down the walls? Well, the children of Israel walked around Jericho and they realized there's nothing we're going to do to tear down these walls. These walls are thick. These walls are huge. And they're, they're loaded with armies. There's nothing we can do. And as they would walk around, they weren't allowed to say anything. You couldn't even say, wow, that's a big wall. Oh, he's a big guy. You couldn't say anything. You just walked around in silence. And the last day, seven times in silence. And then what? Then you shouted. You're like, God, it's yours. Trumpet blast, shout. And guess what? The walls came down. What did they do? Nothing. They did nothing but believe in God. And I think it's so interesting that, that we realize you don't wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not about the people. It's principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's, that's what we war. We war on the spiritual level. But yet Satan, he disguises his activities. He disguises sin in people's lives so that we see the symptom of that sin. I can't believe you're so rude. I can't believe you would say that. I can't believe you would do this. And we're pointing out, we're pointing to the symptom and we're thinking it's a person. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And you're going to say, Lowell, I disagree with you. You can, but I'll be honest with you. Then you've just got a blotch. If you do not believe God's word, that the battles that we fight are not against people, they're against the spiritual realm. Let me give you one other passage in case you're thinking you're just trying to pull one passage out of context. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus himself is telling the disciples that, that he is going to go to Jerusalem. And in verse 21, it declares this of Matthew 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. What is Jesus doing? He say, guys, I got to go to Jerusalem. But when I'm there, I'm going to suffer at the hands of the religious elite and then I'm going to be killed. 
But he tells them, but don't worry about it, because on the third day, I'm going to come back. On the third day, I am going to rise. And as we see this, through that situation, he tells the, the, the disciples what began to happen. And in verse 22 of Matthew 16, Peter took him aside. Come here, God, let me explain to you the way that things ought to be. Peter takes him aside, and I love this. How cool is that? That Peter like, yo, Jay, come here. Let, let, let me explain this to you. So he takes him aside. He began to rebuke him. Peter rebukes Christ, saying, far be it from you, Lord. Now, I don't get this. He calls him Lord, but yet he's rebuking him. You are authority, yet I'm more authority. You can't call him Lord and rebuke him. You can't call him Lord and correct him. But Peter does. He says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. You cannot die. You cannot do this. And so what does the Lord do? Jesus teaches us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So what does he say? He says in verse 23, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. It isn't Peter. Peter is a symptom. Satan is the one. Satan is our enemy. Satan is the one who wants to do what? He wants to steal. He wants to kill. He wants to destroy. He wants to destroy relationships between brothers in Christ. He wants to destroy relationships between sisters in Christ. He wants to destroy relationships between one church and another church. He wants to destroy relationships between you and your friends. He wants to destroy relationships between you and your children and your grandchildren. He wants to destroy the relationship between husband and wife. He wants to destroy and that's what we realize, that's who you are. And yet it's not what? It's not the people, it's Satan. And how do you fight against Satan? Is you go to prayer. You go to prayer and say, this is God's weapon. This is mighty for the tearing down of strongholds. Enemy, you cannot stand against prayer. You can't stand against how, how walking the word of God in the light, in the purity is going to show what? It's going to show truth. And when you walk in the truth, the enemy is going to kick and the enemy is going to scream and he's going to try to get you to go into some form of gray or darkness or span on something. But if you're into that area of purity, you're going to realize, you know what? What you're trying to feed me isn't purity. There's a tinge of gray in it. And I know what? I know there's a lie wrapped in this truth. and I want none of it. Either give me the truth or give me nothing. And that's what God does. God says, I'll give you the truth. I'll give you the truth. Oh, I have food to eat that you know not of. I'm going to partake of every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I'm going to partake of purity and truth and goodness and justness and loving kindness. That's what I'm going to partake of. But here Jesus takes Peter aside and says, or Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. And I find it so interesting that here Jesus tells Peter, it's not you, Pete. Don't worry about it. But Satan's using you. And as he's using you, I'm going to be very honest. Get behind me, Satan. 
Satan, you, you, you can't sway me. You can't move me. This isn't for you. I won't buy into this with you. Now, what happens is this. Remember that psalm that we were reading this morning is here Regan was reading and we were doing the responsive, but where Regan read in verse 11 of Psalm 86, he said, teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Isn't it interesting that here that passage says, teach me your way? It doesn't say teach them your way. Why is it that we always said, I want to teach, Lord, teach them your ways. And, and ultimately, let them walk in your truth, because I'm fine. No, it isn't about pointing out other sins. It's not about dealing with the specks in your brother's eyes. It's about dealing with the planks that are in your own, the compromise that are in your own, how much area of my life is gray. And if it's not completely gray or a light gray, and if it's in white, then how much of it is blotched? How much blotches do I have where I've compromised a little here and compromised a little there? Because every time I've compromised, he can make it a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. And it's interesting to see how he does this and how the enemy works in it. But what we see is this. He says, teach me your ways. Oh, teach me your ways, oh Lord. And what are his ways? Well, teach me your ways. I will walk in your truth. You can simply say, teach me your truth, oh God. Teach me the light, O oh God. Teach me purity, O oh God, and I will walk in it. Do you understand? He says, you show me what your heart is, and I'm going to walk fully your heart. Why? Why aren't I going to compromise? Because it says at the end, unite my heart to fear your name. Oh, touch my heart for you. Not just my mind, because I can rationalize with my mind, but touch my heart, because my heart is finally pursuing you. My mind is realizing what this pursuit is. There will be no room for the enemy to come and to manipulate. But the enemy wants to deceive. And so often what happens is this, is the enemy has a way of just lulling us. Little tiny things, a lull here and a lull there. There's a passage in the, the book of James, and I want to read it to you. It begins in chapter 4, verse 4, where he says this, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So often we compromise, well, I want to be part of the world. I want, I want the world to like me. I want this. He says, if you do that, keep in mind the world is one thing. The world is compromised. The world is deceived. And as the world is deceived, I think it's important to realize that here, if you think that you want to have a friendship with the world and not to say, wow, why does the world see me as an enemy? Because God sees me as a friend. If they realize I'm a friend of God, I'm going to be an enemy to the world. And so keep in mind to be in the world, not of the world. We've gone through those things before, but I think it's important to say, where am I at? How should I move? What is going to be the, the key here? Well, there are some areas of victory. And how do we have victory? Well, if you've turned to that passage in James 4, Look at verse 7. If you haven't turned there, just jot it down. James 4, verse 7. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Do you know what that means? That means as you're walking in the light, the enemy is going to say, I don't want any part of this. I'm not walking into the light to get you. 
Because you, if he can get you to turn around, if he can get you to hesitate, if he can get you to turn back, then he's got you. I mean, think of Lot's wife. They were all leaving. They were all like, what happened to Lot's wife? She turned and she longingly looked back. Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, I remember. Instantly, pillar of salt. So be careful you're not looking back because the enemy, he's just trying to get you distracted. If he can get you to just, just turn or think, and what happens if you get your mind to think first and then your body's going to turn, once he gets you looking, he's, he's yours. I don't know if you've ever seen these fishermen shows, but what they do is this. They show this lure coming through the water, and the fish sees the lure. Now, there are certain times where the fish, once it's been fed, once the fish is glutted, it sees the lure like, uh, so what? But if it's hungry, and if it's not been fed, if it's not satisfied, it sees the lure like, oh, man, this is good. goes after it, snaps onto that lure, and once it bites onto that lure, it's hooked. Guess what? Its life is no longer its own. That fisherman's like, wah, and fish is just skipping on the water. Can't control itself. Can't say, well, I want to go over here. Yeah, I know you do, but this, this, this rope, this tug is not going to allow you to go there. And that's what the enemy does. He throws in these deceptions, these lures. And if you bite on it, just turn and bite just for a moment. Once you bite, he sets that hook and he ranks you in. And this is what we see here when he says, if you want, submit to God, resist the devil. Realize that you have the food to eat. This is all I want is that which is pure and noble and just and good and right. I'm, I'm seeking the, 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 the purest sense of my walk and of your heart. And that's what I'm going to pursue. And if I do that, I won't have gray areas. I won't have blotches. I won't have those things. And we begin to see here, it's all about what? It's about submitting to God. It's about keeping my eyes on the Lord. And, and when we recognize how important it is to keep our eyes on the Lord, remember there when Peter was walking on the water there in Matthew chapter 14, and as, as he was there walking, before he walked, Jesus actually himself called him and says, why don't you come out, Peter, and, and I want you to, 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 to follow me. So in Matthew 14, verse 29, Jesus said to Peter, come. And Peter had come out of the boat and he walked on the water. But when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand, caught him and said to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? The enemy wants you to get your eyes off the Lord. Just turn a little bit. If you turn a little bit, he's got you snagged. Remember what we talked about. We talked about how deception comes in increments. If you turn your head a little bit, you'll turn your head some more. You turn your head a little bit more, you turn, and all of a sudden the wind and the waves come. Now, when you keep your eyes set just on Jesus, you're like, what's water? What's walking on water? I'm here with my Lord. He bid me come. It was his word. He said, come. I'm just following his commandments and I'm looking at him and nothing else matters but Jesus Christ and his command and me walking it. But once you turn your head, and this is what Peter, all of a sudden something happened. Whether it was a spray in the face or something happened, but immediately what happens is this, that Peter saw. Peter saw that the wind was boisterous. He saw that it was, it was contrary and then he was afraid. And now it's, is Jesus able to keep me up even with this? 
Is his commandment able to keep me walking even with this? And there's fear that begins to creep in and doubt that begins to creep in. And that, my friends, is deception. You start turning your head from the purity of what it is and Satan's got you. Because it's just one more increment, one more increment, one more increment. You see that little lure come by, snags you. This is where the enemy is, but yet God has given us this great word to say what? I want to just stand with you, Lord. I don't want to compromise these things. I want you to teach me your ways, and I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. And as we begin to walk in those things, then we understand here what the Lord means through the enemy. How here in this time of what we refer to as the millennium, a thousand year reign, Satan is not able to deceive. And what does that mean? That means that for a thousand years, there is no gray. Do you understand? That's all it means. There is no gray. There is the word of God and there's not listening to the word of God. There's his truth and what's not truth. There's no gray at all. And so often we have a tendency of Christians to do what? Living in the gray, living in this no man's land, living on the fence. And yet here in the millennium, there is going to be purity and there is going to be darkness and there's a chasm of nothingness in between. So if you're not in purity, you are in darkness. And if you are in darkness, you're not in purity and there's going to be no, no excuses. And this is what he does through the millennium. And this is why it's such a beautiful reign of Christ. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. And no one is going to be deceived during this time. You can't say, well, the reason I did this was because... No, you'll say, the reason I did this was because of sin. And you'll get a choice to repent and come back. But you can't make excuses for not being in the light anymore during this time. And you know what's amazing? Is for a thousand years, there's perfect light and perfect darkness and no gray anywhere for one thousand years. And then in verse eight, Satan is just for just a moment. He released from prison will go out and deceive the nations. And this is a crazy thing because what we see is this, is after he's now locked in for a thousand years, at the end of verse three, what did it say? He must be released for a little while. And in a little while, do you know what he does? He causes massive gray, massive compromise, massive deception. And so much so that he says this, verse 8, I will go out and deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose numbers are the sand of the sea. And they went up. Notice how quickly they were deceived, verse 9. They went up in the breath of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints of the beloved city. How quickly they were deceived. How quickly the gray comes in and compromise settles. And I want you to be just very clear on what I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to say that we will all be in the light perfectly. Paul says, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, oh man, oh wretched man that I am. I find myself doing, who in this, can heal this body? Who can stop this flesh? Oh, Jesus Christ. 
What I'm saying is this, is, is that if you do not want the deceptions of the enemy, if you've recognized, man, I've been deceived by the enemy, here's the goal. Just go to the purity. Just, just go to the purity. Just remember Ephesians or Philippians 4, 8, whatever things are pure, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, just walk to the purity. If you walk to the purity and you keep your eyes on the purity, not to say that we're not going to stumble, not to say that we're not going to falter, but if you do that, you're going to be aware of the enemy's lies. You're going to be aware of deceptiveness. And I think it was needed for us to share this because I'll be honest with you, in this world, man, deception reigns. How many times have you seen Christians walk in the gray? How many times have you as a Christian walk in the gray? How many times could you say in my life right now, how many things can I tell you I'm in the gray? that I'm not walking the fullness of his word. I've compromised. I think there's a better path, another way, and I can choose myself what's right. Know this, every time you do that, you're walking in deception. You're, you're walking in a lie. And so I think it's so important for us to realize that Satan, his number one issue is deception, to make us doubt, to make us have this heart of unbelief, to doubt God's word. But everything he does, remember this, is increments, increments, increments. If you wondered, how did I get here? The answer is in increments. You got there a little bit at a time. One after another, after another, little tiny compromise, little bit bigger blotch, little bigger, bigger blotch, little darker blotch. And that's how the enemy works. Rather than walking fully in the purity, and so deception is a process. And understand, what the biggest thing of Satan does in his deception is he wants you to point out it's other people. It's them, it's them, it's them. The issue isn't them. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not other people. It's not the symptom that you're wrestling against. It's the cause and you fight against sin, and you fight against sin in prayer. You fight against sin in the word. You fight against sin in you walking in purity, but you walk that path that God has chosen for you, not the path that you want for yourself. When you do that, you are going to find yourself blessed beyond measure. Just, just blessed beyond measure. May we be aware of the enemy's guiles of the enemy's ways of the enemy's deception and i think it's so important let's keep our eyes on the lord let us just simply you know just keep our eyes on god and realize here that i'm going to submit to god and his plan i'm going to walk in his, his truth and i'm going to submit to god in his plan i'm going to resist the enemy when when he whispers my name i'm not turning to look Lol, uh, uh, right here. I want to hear him say my name. I want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's who I'm keeping my eyes on. Be boisterous all you want, win and ways. I'm keeping my eyes on him. Do that, we can have victory. Amen? Father, do thank you for this word. So often, Lord, I think we deceive ourselves in thinking that we're not deceived. And yet, in so many ways, we are. We're deceived, we're deceived by the enemy. We're deceived by false prophets. We're deceived by false Christ. We're deceived by ourselves. Our own dreams, our own desires. These subtle little things of saying, you don't have to walk in the purity of the word. And every time we walk in something that's not pure, we're compromised. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive me, Lord. 
And draw me back to your word. Draw me back to what is pure and what is lovely and what is good. That I will not be deceived. That we will not be deceived. And lead us in your truth. And so draw us, Lord, to you. Teach us your ways, O Lord. Let us walk in your truth. That you would take our hearts and commit them to you in, in the fear of you and the love of you and trusting in you and your word and its purity and its rightness and the path that you have for us. Draw us to that end, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen. Amen.